Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. It's been quite a while since our last chat, mainly due to some personal reasons and the ongoing events around us. Taking a step back allowed me to approach today's discussion with a rather clear head. Delving into this topic that we're discussing today wasn't easy and neither was lining up the diverse range of guests you'll hear from today. So heads up, this episode touches on specific sensitive subjects, including mentions of rape. So I'll provide a trigger warning before we dive in and you could check the the timestamps in the description for those um, specific moments. So let's jump into it and with this episode, aim for a thoughtful and nuanced perspective. After we finish this discussion, here we go. Hello and welcome back after a long break to the intersectional discourse with me, Harleen, where we delve into the intricate threads of global issues and their far-reaching impacts. Today, we're setting our sights on the complex intersection of conflict, gender, and geopolitics, exploring the ripple effects of a masculinized approach to global affairs. To do this, I'm joined by three special guests today, Farishta Abbasi, a researcher in the Asia Division at Human Rights Watch, focusing on research and documentation of ongoing abuses in Afghanistan. For the past 10 years, she has um, documented human rights abuses in Afghanistan with different organizations, including Human Rights Watch and All Survivors Project. She was previously a legal advisor for uh, International Development Law Organization, where she trained and developed employees' legal skills within the Afghan justice sector. She holds an LLM in International Law and Strategic Studies from University of Aberdeen and a Chevening Scholar. Welcome and thanks for joining, Farishta. We also have Noshin, a humanitarian and conflict policy and strategic communications professional with many years of experience working in the humanitarian and human rights sector. She has specialized in Palestine, Yemen, Sudan, Ethiopia and other conflict settings with a keen interest in climate change, displacement and rights of vulnerable groups. She has a law degree and master's in international law from the University of Westminster. Thank you for joining, Noshin. Um, And the third guest, a very special one at that, but whose introduction I will save for myself and call her S to protect her identity today. She is someone who was able to escape from Sudan with her children uh, when the conflict began and is currently settled in Egypt, however separated from the rest of her family who are still stuck like many other civilians in the eye of the storm. Um, Her lived experience of living through the conflict situation will help shape our conversation today. However, I would uh, request both our other guests to to help me keep her anonymous for her and her family's safety. To begin our journey, we'll navigate through the current landscape of strife in Sudan, Gaza and Afghanistan, three conflicts, three situations um, that we will lead our conversation today with. These regions are not just geographical points on a map. They are living, breathing communities, experiencing the profound effects of conflict. 
our focus will be on the lives of individuals, particularly women, uh, who often bear a disproportionate burden in such turbulent times. But before we immerse ourselves in the present, um, let's take a step back and trace the origins of these conflicts. How did these tensions evolve? And were there early signs that we overlooked? In, in most cases, the answer would be an obvious yes. Um, but by understanding the historical context, we will aim to unravel the complexities that led these uh, regions to their current predicaments. Uh, we will also scrutinize the role of masculinized diplomacy and geopolitics in shaping the course of these conflicts. From the corridors of power to international relationships, the influence of male-dominated decision-making processes has profound consequences. Just for instance, currently, the UK and US are spearheading military involvement in Yemen in the past few days. And this approach may have contributed by exacerbating a crisis situation. Um, so my first question would be to Farishta. You have been working um, in with Human Rights Watch in the international relations sector. How do you see this masculinized approach to global diplomacy? And do you think um, the conflicts are very much a, a consequence of that uh, year, years long, uh, decades long management through a masculinized view of global policy? Um, thanks so much, Pauline, first of all, for inviting me and for uh, keeping a highlight on Afghanistan because um, we don't hear much about the Afghanistan anymore. There is, uh, unfortunately, there is um, one conflict after another one unfolding every day in this world, um, or um, I would say every often a while. And that means that the previous in the past conflicts would disappear. No one speaks about Syria anymore. No one speaks about Iraq anymore. And Afghanistan. Um, um, is is uh, uh, gone from the headlines of the, of the news as well, and that's one of our concerns because no one speaks about Afghanistan, and that doesn't mean that the situation is getting uh, better there. Um, the war that or the conflict that was in Afghanistan or has happened in Afghanistan, imagine a, a country that has been in conflict for decades. Imagine a population that has been born in conflict, raised in conflict, lived their all their life uh, through a conflict. Um, th that's how um, the Afghan population have uh, survived uh, for years. But the war, especially in the past 20 years in Afghanistan, uh, has been under the name of women. Um, uh, I remember um, back years back in 9-11, I was still a child when I heard about what has happened uh, um, in, uh, um, um, in New York. And I, I had no idea that how would that affect my life and how close actually those effects will hit my life and the generation that I was living through and um, my siblings, my family, um, uh, later my friends and colleagues. Um, this war was under the name of women. Um, uh, liberation of Afghan women is what I would say. Looking back in those 20 years and what is happening right now in Afghanistan, um, I want to come back to your first question that uh, was it that evident to see that it would end up like this? And I would say yes. Um, 
um, I mean, shortly after 9-11, first of all, the Taliban were, were um, thrown with very few casualties. But then there was another two decades of the international presence in Afghanistan to, to stay, to build a democracy in Afghanistan, um, to um, support Afghan women, to amplify Afghan women's voices, to bring women into leadership posts and positions, to include women in decision making. And what is happening right now in Afghanistan, I think, is gives us a very clear response on how these um, global diplomacy, as you said, I would like to use the term, has played in Afghanistan and what are the consequences of that? And who is bearing these um, uh, the effects, who, who is going through all these um, the effects of every single decision that have been taken um, in those 20 years. Um, since uh, 15th of August 2021, I think um, 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 everyone knows that what is happening in Afghanistan. And it actually annoys me to hear that what is happening still is under the name of women. Taliban have launched, um, I believe that the Taliban have launched a war on women, on women's rights, on women's bodies, on women's autonomy, individuality. They have challenged every single basic rights of women. And it annoys me to see that uh, a group of men still getting together in capitals of Europe, in the US, in the UK to decide for women. How many uh, female diplomats do we have that actually engage with the Taliban and speak to the Taliban? How many? Um, female leaders do we have who is who is actually sitting on the table and, and, and discussing these issues while Afghanistan remains to be uh, to be one of the unique women's rights crisis. Um, one of our advocacy calls in the past two years, we kept calling on the world, on the international leaders that include women, uh, include women delegates who um, uh, visits Kabul, include female diplomats who engage with the Taliban. And you see that to what extent the world has heard um, um, us and Afghan women in the past two years. You're absolutely correct. And there is such a lack of, even where women exist in global diplomacy, the approach is still masculinized. Isn't that right, Farishta? And you have been, you're a woman working in that sector. Um, you have worked and researched well enough uh, about the region. Can you tell me a little bit more about how the socioeconomic conditions affect this intersectionality of being a woman and surviving in a conflict? I. I usually say this. I mean, as a as a woman who's born, I was born as a refugee in Iran and raised and worked in Afghanistan, and now I live in exile in in London in the UK. I would say that this world is built for men. This world is for men. Everything here is for men. Um, and you can easily say that from from getting walking into a room into an office where I feel cold in the winter because the air conditioned system is is built for for men's bodies is is I feel that this is not my world and everything is in favor of them. Um, to going in the worst case scenario to what is happening for women in Afghanistan, imagine um, I would like to speak a bit about the compounded vulnerability that hits these women in, in this kind of conditions. Imagine uh, uh, to, to belong to an ethnic minority in Afghanistan. Um, who is currently uh, suffering from an economic crisis because Taliban are not allowing women to work, which has made it very difficult for the humanitarian aid organizations to make sure that the aid is reaching the vulnerable people, um, especially for women. Um, you are being um, hit from, from different sites. Um, 
aid organizations are trying to mitigate that crisis, but because Taliban are not allowing uh, male aid workers to distribute aid for, uh, for women, you don't get that uh, him, uh, aid. At the same time, if, if you're a woman um, who, who is um, going through um, economic hardship these days, if you believe to uh, an ethnic minority, um, it's very, um, I mean, it's very easy to see that you are more, um, uh, um, you're more at risk to be a subject to domestic violence. Um, there has been reports that in the past two years, uh, uh, there has been an increase in the case of domestic violence against women in Afghanistan because people are poor. Um, there's a lot of um, mental effect, uh, mental health effects that goes into that. There are a lot of women who, I mean, we've heard a lot of reports about women being uh, uh, prone to uh, commit uh, uh, suicide in the past two years because you you basically have nothing. And I can um, see that. I mean, um, from a very personal experience, when I came to Scotland for the first time to do my master's, um, as a person who is... Um, who, who uh, has that his, her life has been shaped around the conflict in Afghanistan. When I came to Scotland, it was the first time that I had the opportunity to know that I'm, I'm depressed because you never have that mental space to know that you're not fine. And I cannot uh, imagine what is uh, what uh, how um, uh, Afghan women are dealing with all these issues every day. You are um, they are living um, in a in a life uh, under the constant risk of being arrested, knowing the fact that if if you you get arrested in the streets of Kabul, you could be tortured, you could be killed, you could be disappeared. There's an um, economic crisis um, ongoing, and you know that as a woman, you have no identity. You have there is no protection system for you. I think. Um, but what is happening in Afghanistan today is is a total madness, and it's so difficult to describe it in terms and words. Well, your lived experience really adds to this discussion. But who I has would been also like to bring and in has S been separated here. from her family mm. because of the ongoing crisis in Sudan, which, again, like Afghanistan, we're not talking about. I mean. Seven million people have fled their homes due to the infighting that began in April. Um, about 12,000, over 12,000 people have been killed. Even this is likely an undercount since many of the areas where the infighting is happening are inaccessible to you know, observers. Um, Sudan has had a history of um, civil wars practically since independence in uh, 1956. Uh, but this uh, war is unique um, in that one of its main battlegrounds is Khartoum, which is the capital, um, and is home to an estimated 9.4 million people. Uh, what is happening now has uh, affected women in far worse ways. And um, S here will be able to tell us about her experience, if you could uh, come in S and tell us a bit about your personal experience of escaping that violence in Sudan. And um, how has your gender played a role in your journey to safety? Uh, hello. Uh, first, thanks a lot, Harleen, for spotting the light on Sudan, because there is a media blackout. And no one speaks about Sudan, although it's been nine months by now since the war has started. Okay, uh, I will tell you my story. 
first, um, since the outbreak of fighting uh, in Sudan on April uh, 15, Sudanese people are suffering and uh, live in terror. Uh, I'm a mother of four children. The oldest, uh, the oldest one is eight years old, and the youngest one is two years old. Okay. We live with my husband in uh, a district that is located in the suburb of the capital. A day before the war starts, my husband took my four years old uh, son and went to visit his family, which is two hours uh, away from us. He decided to sleep there and come the next morning. The next day, which was the Saturday on April 15, the war has started and I woke up with a call of my father checking on me because there was a military camp near to us like uh, 500 meters away uh, from us. So I was shocked uh, because I thought uh, about my husband and my son. I tried to reach them, but I couldn't because there was no network. Uh, then after two hours, he could reach me and tell me that they are okay, but uh, they couldn't go outside home. So um, me and my uh, three other children stayed alone for uh, 10 days. They were 10 days of sheer terror. Uh, we, could, we couldn't understand uh, what's going on. We were just hearing the sound of explosions and shooting, and uh, the, like, the glass of windows are uh, broken. So after that, my husband uh, left my son uh, and our car in his family's house because uh, it was like a risk to take my son with him and walked for more than three kilometers and uh, found some uh, available public transportation and uh, tried to reach us and finally he uh, could reach us. After that, uh, he brought a very small car. It's uh, like it belongs to his uh, friend and we tried to escape from the place because uh, our place was so dangerous, like a region that is targeted that was targeted by the RSF. Um, so we passed through uh, through many checkpoints uh, of militia, militia, until we reached an area where it's like uh, it contained a prison. But uh, this prison was broken by the militia, and all the criminals were released. So we passed through a lot of criminals holding uh, weapons. Uh, and uh, we saw them breaking uh, like uh, supermarket, breaking houses. We were so scared until we bought this area. Uh, thanks God. After that, uh, we could reach my family's house because we couldn't go to his family's house because uh, like in also the area between uh, our house and his family house was so dangerous. Uh, so we stayed uh, in my family's, uh, my family's house. But unfortunately, this uh, my family house was near the hospital, and at that time, RSF uh, evacuated all hospitals. Uh, all patients uh, are uh, ejected from hospitals, even which are uh, in special cases. So um, they uh, stayed on hospitals and became a target uh, for the uh, for the army for Sudanese army. Okay. I remember that after two, uh, one week after staying there, the servant of my uh, family uh, came and she was crying 
and she told us that uh, her, her daughter was raped by the soldiers and she was asking us to help her but we couldn't do anything um, because um, we were like uh, in, in that house we were like uh, 11 girls so if my father or my husband did anything we may be targeted by the militia so we couldn't uh, do anything just we cried with her uh, and after that every day at night we hear the sounds of uh, uh, bullet and uh, like militia uh, break doors by guns and by uh, uh, like breaking doors trying to loot those houses they uh, looted the uh, the assets of civilians uh, and uh, every day we hear that militia raped uh, so many girls and my uh, my aunt which is like the cousin of my mother uh, was kidnapped by militia uh, uh, he and her daughter it's like now it's like six or nine months six or seven months we couldn't reach her until until now uh, until now we don't where is she or where uh, are they? So when we, when my family asked uh, some soldiers from RSF, they told us that uh, the beautiful uh, girls uh, uh, was taken for the uh, like the chef of um, of um, what I kind of called it. Uh, the chef was like a group of uh, soldiers, so they took uh, them for them and uh, they like uh, be like slaves for them and they do uh, like mass rapes for uh, them okay so we don't reach her until now we don't we don't know anything about her so uh, and um, my neighbors my neighbor or my family's neighbor uh, was uh, riding a car with his wife trying to escape from this area and uh, the soldiers uh, catch them and told uh, told him to leave his wife and uh, he uh, refused to do that so they shooted him and took uh, her wife and also we don't know where is she right now but when or uh, there is a brutal thing happens it's like uh, um, the militia raped a lot of girls okay the girls here in this area search for contraceptive pills and uh, the uh, in in my uh, medical group a lot of uh, my 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 colleagues asking for because there is there is a shortage in medicines and there is shortage in uh, in food in everything right now so they ask where where could we find uh, contraceptive pills we were they trying to find drugs for uh, sexually transmitted diseases uh, and some and some girls asking that yeah, uh, um, is it is it okay if we uh, decided to suicide before uh, before the uh, soldiers attack us? Okay, I know uh, two of my friends has been raped, but I couldn't reach them. Reach them. I tried to support them, but I couldn't reach them. I don't know um, what to do for them. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing okay. your your story. Um, but I would like to bring in uh, Farishta and Noshin on this because this is 
not just the story we see from Sudan. This has been happening over the years, over decades. This is happening in Gaza right now. What is it that leads to women being this collateral damage? And we 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 are seeing what is happening in Gaza, and we will talk about it in uh, more detail. But Farishta, can you can you come in and uh, kind of help us analyze this um, the way in which women are brutalized and women's bodies are in in conflict situations, uh, especially when these conflicts are led by men. Uh, why is it that this becomes such an easy way of or or an arm of this conflict? Um, I just wanted to say that um, it was um it was a very it was a devastating story that I just heard from us, and it, I'm sure it has impacted all of us um, here in this discussion and um, sending lots of uh, love and uh, strength um, to, to uh, us. It must be very difficult to speak about all of these and thanks so much for, for sharing this. Um, I mean, in the situation of conflicts, usually throughout the history and what is happening right now in the world, we have seen that the gender norms are being used as weapons of war. That those social um, prejudices that women are um, uh, are weak. Uh, I mean, we have zero country in this world that has achieved gender equality. There is no country that we can say that they have they have achieved this goal. No matter the feminist foreign po policy countries that we have right now, the countries that are leading all these efforts, we are, we are still dealing with uh, a lot of uh, major issues when it comes to gender equality. And it, that means that in a situation of conflict where we are where there is no rule of law, there is no order, and um, it makes women vulnerable without those protection systems in place without any regulations or, or rules you 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 see that the sexual exploitation usually increases during the uh, situation of conflicts and it doesn't really matter which region or we are speaking of um, you can see that women are being used as weapons of war um, in, in, in different areas, Afghanistan is a clear uh, a, a clear example of that. Um, uh, I mean, we have had um, reports of the. Um, um, I um, I just wanted to bring this um, example here because I was just speaking to someone yesterday who's been telling me that um, her cousin is being married off to a member of the uh, Taliban without her consent, and she was being kidnapped for a few days by a, a, a Taliban commander, and uh, she was being brought back to her family, and the Taliban member has just said that she's my wife now so you can see um and 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 this is as a revenge or kind of um uh, the father of these um girl used to be um used to work with the former security officers and they were trying to understand and analyze you see how complex this is um, as a revenge to the former government for example some of their um, uh, former um, government uh, employees were killed but at the same time their daughters their their wives who have no idea about or, or were not part of that process or also being taken advantage of or, or uh, unfortunately the victims of, of this um, um, uh, sexual um, violence. One more thing that I wanted to add, uh, um, uh, I don't want to take too much space, but one of the things I wanted to, I want to add is that women are being used as weapons of war as well as the LGBTQ community because that in itself um, 
there's a lot of um, complex and there's uh, issues about that. People have a lot, there's a lot of um, uh, cliches about the LGBTQ community. And in countries like Afghanistan, where it's a very closed society, where it's a very traditional society, the LGBTQ community has never had enough support. There has never been enough civil society organizations or laws or system to protect them. And now, um, uh, I mean, according to the Taliban official who basically said that the LGBTQ community do not exist in Afghanistan, these individuals do not exist, that itself rings a bell for me. Uh, there's a lot of concerns. Um, these people could be killed and disappeared very easily because the Taliban totally denied their identity. So um, the reason I'm bringing all this uh, together um, uh, is because that if you belong to a marginalized um, uh, uh, um, uh, community, um, um, I, I'm, I'm, in no matter if you're a child, in no matter if you're a woman in a country like Afghanistan, in a very conservative and traditional society like Afghanistan, that does not respect your, your basic rights, or if you belong to the LGBTQ community, which basically you don't have any identity in a, in a country like Afghanistan, you can easily be used as an easy target to, to, to achieve certain goals. And men have definitely, or people in power have definitely exercised those, um, uh, uh, those uh, 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 practices against these individuals. Mm, absolutely. And I mean, there, uh, the kind of situations that are now existing in Afghanistan, in Sudan for that matter, because Sudan was also once a colony, had Western interventions. Um, right now, what is happening in Gaza is uh, um, is an aspect of that. Um, but um, Noshin, I would like to bring you in. Um, what Farishta said and what S has told us. Um, first off, you have been a very fierce advocate for what is happening in Gaza and for ceasefire um, and for holding all actors that have led to this situation to be held accountable. Um, but just taking from what S, the, the, the devastating story that S has told us about her journey and what is happening in Afghanistan that Farishta has told us, why do you think these are some of the conflicts that have been very conveniently forgotten or sidelined. Hi, Harleen, um, and thanks so much for inviting me. Um, and I just want to say, just echoing what um, Farishta was just saying about S um, and sharing her, her story really just really, really touched me um, and I think it's incredibly brave of her to come on and, and talk about those experiences um, but I think I think generally speaking um, I think first already touched on this on this that there are conflicts right now in the world unfortunately we are we are in a world where you don't quite go over the first conflict and the next one has started and the next one has started um, which is why I think partly what happens is when one conflict is still ongoing, another one comes and, you know, everybody starts to talk about that conflict. And then another one comes and everybody starts to talk about that conflict. And I think this current conflict in, in Gaza has really um, caught people's attention in a way that perhaps others haven't. Um, and I think that's where 
the conflicts in, in Sudan, for example, and what's happening in Afghanistan, and also in, in other places like Syria um, and many other places in the world um, where many of these conflicts have almost fallen down, um, kind of the importance of, of them has dropped. Um, and I think it's an incredible um, shame that that's happened because, of course, no life is worth more than another. Um, however, I, I think with, with the conflict in Gaza right now, there is um, there's so much geopolitics around that conflict. And it's not just one or two you know, countries involved. It's, it's an entire kind of um, world impact, if you like. And it's essentially this idea of like the global south and the, and the global north kind of in a kind of being pitted against each other. And I think that's why there is so much interest in this in this crisis at the moment. Um, and I don't like to call it a conflict just because I think it gives the impression that there's two equal sides. And I think, you know, it's essentially a war on Gaza, I think is, is probably a better way to, to describe it. Um, but yeah, and I, I think the this conflict, this, this crisis in Gaza has galvanized um, a new wave of activism, I think, in people. Um, and, I, and I would like to think that because of what's happening um, as a result of, of this um, galvanized um, activism and advocacy is that it will have a knock-on effect on, on the other crises that we are currently seeing. And I'm seeing actually on the back of people talking more and more about Gaza, um, some spotlight has come back onto Sudan um, from, from where I'm seeing um, in my LinkedIn network at work, um, kind of my, my own personal advocacy as well. I'm seeing the impacts of kind of this, this um, global awareness of, of crises and inequalities that people are seeing play out in Gaza, actually having an, a positive impact, if I can call it that, on kind of understanding other crises and, and wanting to be more aware of what's happening around the world other than just what's happening in Gaza. Yes, I think um, that's absolutely right. And you're right in saying that um, some attention has been brought back to Sudan. And that was also the idea of bringing S on uh, to, to for her to tell her story, because it's not just her story, but story of so many women in Sudan uh, right now. And um, like S mentioned, uh, there has been some sort of blackout, media blackout um, in Sudan as well. And one of the biggest resources, I just want to bring this up, um, that I personally follow uh, to keep note of what is happening uh, the and the advocacy efforts is on LinkedIn, a journalist called, called Matt Nashid, uh, if I'm saying that right. Um, he has been writing extensively on what is happening in Sudan uh, and bringing attention to Sudan. Um, just uh, before I go on to discuss Gaza in more detail, uh, uh, I want to bring S again back onto the discussion to understand what is it um, that civilians, normal public in Sudan are looking forward to 
because this conflict has been happening for a long time. It has snowballed into something this big now. But in all of this, even in, for that matter, in Afghanistan, the, the um, conflict, to, so to say, has been at least in the narrative that has been set be between Taliban and the Western government. Um, in Sudan has been about um, the a democratic government setting up versus the RSF uh, military factions. In Gaza, it has been about Hamas and um, the Israeli government, which is a very skewed way of looking at it because it is more than that. It is about the civilians. It is about the regular people and their lives being impacted. So I want to understand from S, uh, what is it that the people of Sudan wish for? And how is it impacting them? How has, been, how has it been impacting your life, your family's life? OK, Arling, uh, thanks again. OK, uh, RSF forces are looking for um, civilians' assets and civilians' houses and girls as uh, the spoils of the war, OK? So uh, they don't want to go out of our houses. Uh, after two, weeks, uh, two weeks after we uh, left our houses, they, they came to our houses and took all of our assets and they are still there, okay? So they deal of, uh, with all of our assets, like the spoils of the war. So they think the very thing that civilians want from the RSF is to go out of our houses, to go out of Khartoum, uh, of, the, of, uh, the, of all cities, and stay on the border, okay? Not to stay with the people, because we cannot trust them anymore. How can I go in on the street alone uh, after what happened? Okay, can you understand me? So uh, this is the first thing that people want. Uh, after that, there may be negotiation between uh, the uh, Sudanese uh, military and between the RSF after first doing the first uh, uh, after uh, evacuating the and also evacuating or evacuation of hospitals and uh, schools. Um, orphanage, all of those are um, are filled with RSF soldiers. Okay, um, this is the main thing that people want. Uh, so you're saying that there is is there a sense of bringing back democracy and a democratically yes, elected of government? Course. Yes, yes, of course. The, I'm, I can say this is the first thing if they are not in our houses, but uh, because um, because of what happened right now, uh, all of people want to uh, go back to their homes and to live normal life. Uh, there is uh, really uh, food and uh, medicine crisis. Um, there is uh, there is no treatment at all okay after that we want democracy uh, we don't uh, want uh, the country uh, like ruled by um, by military forces 
or uh, anything that is related to um, like um, any military forces, okay? Sorry. But uh, this is the main thing. We want democracy in Sudan. We want uh, all of uh, ministries um, managed by or administered by uh, qualified people that's not uh, belong to uh, military forces also. Uh, we want, uh, as uh, you mentioned, equality in everything. Um, uh, that's all. Thanks, S. Um, Noshin, I would like to bring you in on this. Uh, like S mentioned, um, there is a will of the public, of the people, of civilians. Similar to the will of people on the Gaza Strip in Palestine. There has been a sense where governments have been over the years telling what people want, what people need. And that has spiraled into what is happening in Gaza right now. Mm -hmm. um, can you shed a bit? more light onto this situation where civilians are the ones that are impacted. Civilians are the one that uh, elect these governments for that matter. Mm -hmm. What has happened through the years uh, in Gaza, the Palestinians have kind of, uh, the voice has been lost as much as the people in Sudan have that voice still, it's very similar to what has happened over the years in Afghanistan, uh, what has happened, what is happening in Gaza. Can you elaborate on that a bit? And how do you see this going forward? Um, because, I mean, just to, to um, shed light on what is happening right now uh, uh, after the ICJ hearing, uh, the International Court of Justice hearing, uh, Netanyahu has said that no matter what the proceedings, the results of the proceedings are, there will, this militarized action will continue. Mm -hmm. And there is no, uh, no will of the public being taken into account. Uh, no will of the Palestinian uh, civilians being taken into account that have lost their families, their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, can you help us elaborate a bit more on that oh i'll try um it's it's a really uh complex matter in the sense that um there's a very long history behind this um and you know many people didn't know anything about the long-standing occupation of palestine by israel um before october 7th actually and that's partly because I guess of the general war on terror narratives that we've seen in pretty much all mainstream media since September the 11th. And those same narratives actually underpin much of Western media coverage of Gaza. And so when September, when, sorry, when the 7th of October happened, the narrative was quite simple, that Hamas had committed an unprovoked attack on Israeli soil because they were barbaric, uncivilized Muslim terrorists. And before I go on, I would just like to add here that, of course, like the violence that was inflicted on the Israeli citizens on October 7th was nothing short of horrific, um, you know, and 
we would all be hypocrites to say otherwise because none of those innocent people deserved any of what they got. However, to understand the context of those attacks, you absolutely have to understand that they did not happen in a vacuum. You know, Palestinians have been living under a 75-year, very, very brutal occupation, which controls every aspect of their lives. Um, there are violent crackdowns on any attempts to rebel against this. And even prior to October 7th, actually, Palestinian lives were cheap. You know, Israeli forces have acted with complete impunity, unlawfully killing men, women, children, arresting uh, people, brutally assaulting innocent civilians. And Israel is actually the only country in the world that tries children in military courts. There's, there's still currently 700 minors in Israeli prisons. And you know we saw during the humanitarian pauses that when the uh, Palestinian hostages were exchanged for Israeli hostages, there were very, very young people. Some of them were barely 15 or 16 years old, the, the Palestinian hostages. And many of them had already been in prisons for five to six years prior. So you know if you do the maths, that would mean that many of those hostages were no older than 10 or 11 when they were arrested. Um, and, and I guess like if you, if you look at the history and you look at the British government's involvement in the um, creating you know, this, this Jewish national home um, within Palestine, um, they facilitated Jewish immigration and essentially what is the colonization of, of Palestine. You know, and after the Second World War, um, and, and the horrors, the awful horrors of the Holocaust, there were some 600,000 Jewish survivors that needed a home, but there was no Western state that was willing to take them. You know, these are the same Western democracies that are now falling over each other to offer, you know, Israel aid and more weapons to murder innocent people. Um, and, you know, to come back to your, your uh, question about um, why no one's listening to what the public is saying essentially i think you will see that the uk government and the palestine the sorry the us government um have a huge hand in keeping the status quo in gaza and in the west bank you know they've refused repeatedly to vote for a ceasefire at the united nations security councils they've been using their uh their veto to devastating consequences with 80% of palestinian people at risk of, of starvation at this point, you know, and this is all against public opinion. You know, we've seen masses of protests all across the UK, all across Western uh, Europe. And all of this, I guess, is as a result of the UK and US government's unwavering support um, of Israel. And all of this, again, is, I guess, in a way, um, trying to control the geopolitics, trying to control the narratives that have been so deeply entrenched in the way that we think about um, whether it's the global south as, as a whole or whether we or whether how we think about Muslim people or Arabs. And I think that the UK and the US government have a very um, obvious agenda here and it doesn't matter what uh, their their public is saying, you know, you, you're actually even seeing um, within their own countries, and these these are countries that you know traditionally claim to to champion um, 
uh, equality, to champion justice, to, to, to champion women's rights. And, and we're seeing so much that actually all of this is a bit of a smokescreen and they're actually coming down hard on their own people and coming down hard on freedom of speech. You know, people aren't even allowed, we saw in the UK, you know, what happened when um, uh, these marches that are now going on uh, were called hate marches, you know, um, by our Home Secretary and our Prime Minister, and they tried everything in their power to, to stop these marches. Um, and so you're seeing that the impact of what's happening in Gaza is actually not only being felt in Gaza um, or the region around it, it's actually spilling over into the entire world because people are are kind of um, questioning what's been happening because of the the brutality in which the bombing has taken place in Gaza, the amount of um, casualties, the impact on women, the impact on children, you know, the, the, the biggest kind of losers or the, the people paying the highest price in this conflict is, is women and children. You know, and these are traditionally the groups of people that there are calls by, you know, the civilized people of the world to protect women and children. And actually, they are the biggest, uh, they are suffering the, the worst consequences of, of this crisis. Absolutely. And I think it's also like Farishta was mentioning earlier about the just the existence or the tokenistic existence of women in these positions to say that we are championing the rights of women, mm -hmm. we're championing the representation of women. But like you also said, uh, the former Home Secretary, Swella Breverman, despite uh her being in that position as a woman yeah uh, it didn't it 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 wasn't the situations and and i was speaking to uh uh somebody um uh, in the in a in a higher position in in the uk not government but uh, a representative of the government and they mentioned to me uh, we were discussing about this and they said uh, well, do you think that as a woman, because just because she's a woman, she needs to be somebody who cannot take a more militarized opinion of tackling things. Mm -hmm. But then again, this doesn't, and my, my argument to them was, it doesn't necessarily mean, uh, being a woman doesn't necessarily mean that they will take a position that's more um, sympathetic, empathetic for that matter, or a softer position that, and that's the kind of notion that, that gets built that a woman in power will be softer, but that doesn't necessarily translate into, um, I mean, it's a very skewed understanding of a more feminist foreign policy and i think that's that's where the gap exists where what is what is the purpose of of building a feminist foreign policy to be able to eradicate the possibilities of these um conflicts does not necessarily mean having uh women in positions of power as tokens um uh, and then expect them to just be softer as they say 
Yeah, I think I think with Suella Braverman, um, it's, I think it's really important to point out that it's not that she was just a woman, she was a woman of colour. And I think that that uh, impacted, in my, this is my own opinion, I think it impacted hugely how she how she acted and what her policies were and what she says and how she said. Um, and, you know, I think in general, there is there is a very strong feminist movement across the world. You know, we, we've seen this and I'm, I'm sure you all know more about this than me that, you know, we saw an incredible, um, incredibly, um, an incredible solidarity with the movement in Iran um, after Masa Amini was brutally murdered for not wearing the hijab correctly by the Iranian um, so-called morality police. Um, and there are, you know, there's so many other examples, but there is, you know, a deafening silence at the moment from the mainstream feminist movements when the rights are related to Palestinian women or when the rights are related to women in Sudan or, um, you know, women in Gaza are facing horrific circumstances they're being brutally murdered their children are being slaughtered um, their families and their homes are being obliterated but there is no real solid outrage in the way perhaps that you would see if it wasn't in that part of the world you know do the lives um, of women living in the global south not matter as much you know do they do they live in a in a parallel universe perhaps maybe they don't face you know the same issues as, as as other women. You know, there's like you said, there's there's also countries in the West who claim to be champions of women's rights and equality and justice, but there's just this same silence um, from them too. Um, and I just think it's um, very telling, actually, that um, despite the horrific circumstances that the women in Palestine are going through right now. You know, I was reading a story the other day about um, women giving birth um on the floor uh not even in hospitals um and uh women dying in childbirth having cesarean sections without anesthesia um and most recently i read a story about a lady who was trying to get to um a hospital she was carrying a white flag and she was shot down you know in 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 gaza and, and this this is the kind of um circumstances and situations that women are having to to live in and you know as a woman myself as and as a mother myself um it's absolutely heartbreaking to hear some of the stories that you're hearing you know some of the some of the young girls and the women that are in these camps and displacement centers you know they don't have access to feminine hygiene products you know i was reading the other day a lady was saying that she is cutting the side of her tent to use and as a, as a sanitary towel um, when she's when she's on her period, and it's like when you hear things like that, it just really you really begin to question actually the humanity of, of this world. And none of the hospitals are functioning. There's no fuel. There's there's nothing for women to access. Um, S, I would like to bring you on this because. Uh, like Nosheen mentioned, the kind of lack of facilities available for women in Gaza. Earlier when we were speaking before, while we were discussing about doing this podcast episode together, um, you mentioned that you had your sisters uh, back in Sudan. Um, can you tell us about the kind of 
and are you i mean you would be able to tell us if if you're still in touch with them in any way but um while also on your personal journey of trying to escape um the conflict what were the kind of the major challenges that you faced and what are the kind of challenges you think your sisters are facing back home okay uh, about my sisters um one of them is in the same uh, in the safe place in a safe place but my uh, younger sister there was like uh, three months we are trying to uh, help her to um, to escape from her place because every day there's uh, a lot of uh, bullets falling inside uh, her house and uh, the day uh, like two days ago there was uh, um, like a woman, a woman uh, going outside uh, their house and uh, shot, uh, shooted by uh, soldiers and killed in, in front of her door. Uh, so uh, we are really, um, we are really so afraid, and that something may happen to her and her children. She has three children, and uh, they couldn't uh, escape because their area was surrounded by RSF forces um, and um, she f uh, mainly afraid from rape. This is the main thing that she is afraid of. So um, her husband uh, told her that uh, it's better to stay home even they, um, there is uh, like it's, it's dangerous to stay in their home but it's better. It's better because uh, even outside there is missiles uh, falling um so uh, he he told her that uh inside outside it's the same so it's better to stay here uh, and protect each other with their neighbors so they can do anything for each other and uh, for my uh, elder sister uh, she could escape although uh, her husband uh, got many times in the checkpoints and the uh, militia uh, said that he is like uh, a spy just because of his uh, shape maybe i don't know why uh, and uh, they uh, trying to uh, like preventing him from uh, going with um, with his family with my sister a sister and uh, children uh, but uh, uh, the last checkpoint uh, like like something happened like uh, missiles uh, fall uh, near the checkpoint so they are distracted and uh, left them to go and they could reach the safe area um, and uh, about my brother uh, he went to another area every one of us went to a different area in sudan different uh, states uh, according uh, to if, if they have friend or like have uh, his wife or her husband uh, family so they could escape so my brother went to his friend, he took uh, his wife and his children. And uh, after what happened in Madani, his, uh, the uh, city where he stay or they stay, uh, become like um, threatened and maybe attacked uh, at any time with militia. So now he uh, is like, uh, he joined to the, uh, People were they uh, like doing? Uh, I don't know what's uh, called, but uh, they they teaching them to how to hold gun. Uh, 
and how to self-defense and how to defend their family if they were attacked or if uh, and how to protect, to protect the girls because uh, the, uh, the soldiers enter the houses and ask people to go out and if they like the girl they prevent uh, the girls from going outside they took the girls with them or uh, mass raping uh, the girls inside the house and uh, leaving them there so because of this uh, there are a lot of uh, pregnancy cases in sudan and uh, as um, uh, Noshin mentioned there is also like uh, um, some girls try to miscarriage or uh, trying to uh, killing the baby inside them like in, in a panic uh, way so because of that like they suffer from bleeding uh, and uh, because of the health crisis in Sudan um, they couldn't be um, they couldn't be held by um, doctors or even the doctors are threatened because if the militia enters the hospital before the doctors going outside or nurses, they can't go outside uh, never uh, except when they die because the militia hold them to treat their uh, soldiers. So they prevent uh, doctors and nurses from going from going outside hospitals. Uh, now. Um, me and my mother and or and my fathers and my children are safe, but I hope that my sisters and my brother and my husband being safe too. Well, we hope so too, S, and thank you for sharing uh, the story. Uh, Noshin, you heard what the kind of lived experience S and her family have been through. Um, in your advocacy work, uh, you focus uh a lot on the lived experiences of people in gaza of civilians in gaza um what how do you think uh as some as as an advocate for peace as an advocate for justice what are the measures that we can take or just people who the international community for that matter what are the kind of advocacy efforts do you think we can put in place uh to achieve that to achieve that uh that voice to reach the sectors of power um i mean that's the million dollar question isn't it um i think i think more than anything else i think uh raising awareness has got to be one of the most important things, just because I think looking at this um, crisis in, in Gaza, like I explained earlier, there's so many people that actually didn't know the history. They didn't understand why um, these, these things happened on October the 7th. And I think understanding the context of something, going back into the history is just so vital and removing that actually skews the whole the whole concept of what's going on it's you can't understand it um and i think that's what i was talking also about um kind of these these narratives are so entrenched in the media um and in the west that it's something that i think was really really hard to get away from i think things are changing now i'd like to think things are changing um because the media has a huge amount of power 
um, in shaping narratives, in in telling stories or in not telling stories as well. You know, we've seen so many uh, reports of people being restricted on social media, uh, people that are on the ground being restricted to actually post stories and put their stories out there. Um, and without without all of that, like we're blind, right? You don't know about a conflict unless it's being reported about and unless you can see. And I think one of the, one of the, I can say this one of the good things to come out of this crisis is that the the media has been forced at least to change this horrible bias that they had against not just palestinians but i think against the global south and people that come from the global south and portraying them in a certain way and i think one of the the biggest kind of victims of that is is probably and ironically, I'm going to talk a little bit about the men actually being victims of this um, repeated dehumanization um, and this repeated kind of um, making them, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just, yeah, dehumanizing them, repeatedly demonizing them as well. And I think that, you know, while we are talking a little bit about um, the impact of masculinity on, on on women, I think it's also really important actually to highlight some positive narratives as well. You know, I think the, the men in Gaza, despite, despite what the media has tried to show, um, have shown themselves to actually be really, really exemplary in this, in this crisis. And I think they have shown that they are trying to be there for their communities while the the rest of the world has actually forsaken them you know recently um i don't know if you saw but the journalist julia hartley brewers she was um interviewing dr barguti who's yeah. he's a really well respected um uh, academic a person in academic and she was just awful like the way she spoke to him um because of her preconceived notions of of Arab people, of of Muslim men in general, you know, yeah. Palestinian men have actually been pillars of strength in their communities. They're providing support and protection while digging out loved ones from under the rubble with their bare hands. You know, they're also grieving. They're also suffering. So it's not just women and children. Um, you know, they're working tirelessly to to, to serve their communities and to protect. The most vulnerable that are the women you know their sisters their mothers their wives their, their daughters um and, and other women in their community but the media and and the western society has systematically tried to erase the plight of palestinian men who have been heroes for their people um and i just i think that you know going forward trying to move away from that demonization of Palestinian people um, as a whole. And, and also I think, you know, we're gonna see obviously with this, the case in the ICJ right now, I think we, and you, perhaps you touched on this earlier and, and I don't think I fully answered that part of the question, but just to go back to that and say that I think, obviously, as you said, Netanyahu has said that he's, it's gonna make no difference to him what the outcome of, of the, the case is. And I think that's the sad reality. And I think so many people are pinning a lot of hope on the ICJ case. And I think while 100% it will be a moral victory, 
for Palestinian people and, and people who support Palestinians and their right to self-determination. Um, I unfortunately don't think it's going to change much in, in the large scheme of things because ultimately the ICJ decision has to be upheld by the UN Security Council and we've seen already what happens in the UN Security Council and it it doesn't materialize so as soon as somebody uses their veto there's nowhere else to go from there so I think at this moment in time I think the best thing to do is raising awareness protesting and, and people are doing that you know and, and boycotting you know we've seen the impacts of boycotting on really big firms like starbucks and and mcdonald's and i myself am making a conscious effort not to yes. you know go out and buy products that i know are supporting um the israeli genocide the israeli apartheid so i think it's just really important as individuals that we do what we can and we've seen in the past these things of have changed the world you know we saw what happened in south africa and you know and it's now so poignant actually that south africa is the country that is taking israel um to the court for for the genocide of the palestinian people well and as much as that um gives some hope uh it also highlights the kind of um lack of impact that the international organizations now have across the world, um, the UN has been uh, bringing to the fore what is happening in Sudan. The uh, UN Secretary General has been very, very uh, vocal about asking for ceasefire in Gaza. Yeah. Uh, UN has been, uh, over the years, been talking about what is happening in Afghanistan, but it's just um, the way global policy and the global power structures have been uh, set up. Mm -hmm. uh, Again, it comes from the militarized, masculinized way of uh, global power structures that have been set up that refuse to see uh, the the policy and um, the impact of policy from bottom up instead of yeah. and, and the usual instead of the usual top down, and that's kind of impacting and resulting in what is happening right now. Um, conversations have been happening, uh, you know, in in um, over the years, over the two years, I would say, of conflicts, two, three years, I would say that conflicts have kind of rampaged the world. Um, actors in, that have been affected, that have been involved, have in some way or other strung into action as little and as late that may be. Uh, it's kind of eroding now, but the conversation and action taking place now is also failing to yield, you know, favorable results. Um, and therefore the cycle of conflicts continues as we see now. Um, historically, there has been a cycle of conflicts since 9-11, if, if we can trace it back to that. The question still remains that if the existing diplomatic interventions and negotiations that the governments talk about um, are yielding results no different, and we're still running in circles, have we considered a change in our means? As somebody who has been working in uh, with you know the human right human rights watch, you've seen the situations on ground. You may have been um, part of those conversations with the diplomatic actors uh, globally. 
are the diplomatic leaders discussing and considering letting go of negotiations in the traditional masculinized militarized way instead of leading towards a more you know maybe shift to a more feminist foreign policy um i mean i wish we uh, i wish that we were at least going towards that um unfortunately we're seeing that countries of, are dropping from being a feminist foreign policy countries we we had a handful of countries who used to be feminist foreign policy country and uh we're seeing that um uh, uh, countries are, are dropping to be one of those um that that's uh, that, that's a huge issue and i wish that uh, in 2024 it, uh, uh, we as women, we who are working in the human rights field, our advocacy call was not as basic as this, that include uh, um, women in, 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 in decision-making processes. Um, I think it, it, it is a very basic ask, but at the same time, the, the, the fact that we keep pushing this is because this is not happening. This world itself, as I mentioned earlier, is built for men. Diplomacy and politics is, is a very male-dominated um, um, um environment all over the world um I, I don't want to bring examples say that well in this country there is i mean uh, women couldn't be president because it's not on it's not only seeing women in the positions of power but seeing women in the position that they can actually bring a change and can influence is a huge thing in the past 20 years in afghanistan we had 25 percent of our um, members of the parliament by law they, sh they were women we had women ministers we had women who were leading organizations and uh, structures inside afghanistan but my question always is that to what extent these women could change things to what the extent these women were aware of the um, uh, factors that were um, um, making decisions or, or changing things women I mean, overall, uh, internationally, or being sidelined from these these powers, and I hate to, the idea of um, using women uh, women just as a symbol of of the fact to say that well, we are an inclusive entity because we have two women who are there. One of the things that is being used quite a lot is that, um, I, I don't know, you might have encountered this as well, but I'm usually being invited to panels and discussions or to the organizations um, uh, to speak um, as a gender expert. I have no expertise on gender, for example, but because you're a woman, by default, you're being like a, you're being assumed to be a gender expert and and this is quite annoying. Um, so, uh, and you can easily see that it's just, um, because of some of the efforts in the, in, in the past few decades, there are uh, areas there are um, if, 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 that needs to be checked. They, they just need to tick and say, well, yes, we if there was um, there was an event ongoing, and we were supposed to have two women, and we brought two women. No one speaks whether those women were experts. And I um, always, I mean, when I'm being invited to these kind of panels, I usually say that by training on a lawyer, I would very much prefer to be identified as an expert on on, on, on on my expertise rather than being a woman and being assumed to be gender expert. So um, I think this is how the world is is is, is, is uh, behaving these days, uh, these days. And, and that's how we as women are being seen in 2024. And it's not only about uh, in Kabul or Syria or Iraq, it's, it's also happening in London and, and DC and, and in capitals of the world. These um, there are a lot of, I think we as women, we have a long way to go. And, I'm, and I, it's very unfortunate to see that uh, our sisters um, are, are back um, uh, in situation of conflicts. They 
they're they're getting the worst. I mean, what is happening in Afghanistan? I would say it it won't stay only in Afghanistan. Um, they uh, what is happening right now in Afghanistan shows the world that the situation um, can can get as bad as as uh, as it has got in uh, for women in Afghanistan, and that um, brings the bar as low, which will impact uh, women's rights globally. Just to for final comments. Um, S, I would like to bring you in and want to ask you what message do you want to leave with the listeners and the main actors uh, in the region uh, and the how do you want what 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 are your hopes to go back into Sudan when you go back home and get back with your family? What do you hope to see? Um, first, I hope to see my house, my uh, everything that belongs to me. I hope to see. Although now my my house is empty, there's nothing nothing in my house. Maybe we will sleep on the floor when we come back. But just uh, seeing my house will, uh, will return hope to my to me and my family. Okay. Uh, although here in Egypt we are safe, but we can't still we are like broken down we are depressed uh, my mother uh, we we are here like uh, since may since 21 1st of may but still my mother uh, suffering from depression because like um, his children her, her children are uh, in sudan although they are not uh, not young they, they are uh, like adults but um, Still, he's uh, she is a mother. Yeah. yeah. So uh, she suffers from depression. Uh, every time we uh, take her to the doctor, uh, she may get uh, well, but uh, until now she suffers. She uh, she is suffering. So um, we hope that the, those um, RSF uh, soldiers go back to their um, to their areas or to their countries because they are not Sudanese uh, they belong to all of them they belong to a tribe or to an area and they want uh, like to uh, colonize Sudan we don't know they, they just wanted uh, they even changed the um, they wanted to change the uh, distribution of the uh, of the people uh, in their videos they they um, they make video by their sample by themselves when they for example when they are raping a girl they they uh, making video for the same for themselves during that okay when they are looting houses they um, shooting their te themselves so no one in Sudan can uh, can make video for them because they will kill them but they are shooting themselves okay so any video you found in the media. They are the one who uh, who dispersed uh, the video. So um, and in those videos, they they telling the people that you will not come back to your uh, house. These are our uh, spoils, and uh, we will not. They mention the name of the tribes or the uh, the area in Sudan that they will kill the peoples in those area. They will kill the civilians or the citizens uh, of those area. Okay, they they want uh, they it's like genocide or um, like uh, 
they are they are killing certain uh, certain types of people, and and one certain um, uh, I don't know how to say it, but they want only them to stay in Sudan, hmm. and they trying to yeah to kill uh, every other one. I don't know why, but that uh, what they want. So <laughs> I hope that um, they. Uh, go back they go back to their um, areas or to their countries and we come back home uh, and the hospitals uh, and uh, schools there is a, uh, an education the education crisis in sudan also uh, millions of children uh, cannot have uh, or cannot go and go to school because of the school all of the schools either are uh, filled with uh, militia or by people who are displaced from their uh, areas or houses so there is no way to uh, continue their education uh, in schools uh, universities no type of education can be uh, continued or resumed and uh, even uh, the people who went outside for me for example i went outside Sudan, but i can't uh, work because i have mm -hmm. no certificates all of my certificates in sudan i cannot get my certificates even online from the university because uh, the system uh, the systems of universities uh, like i don't know if it's destroyed or the um, management cannot reach the systems so i can't work until now i can't work i'm searching for uh, any uh, any type of work that is not in my field because i cannot work in my field uh, except when uh, i like take exam and I not I cannot take that exam without bringing my certificates so this this is what people suffer even those who are uh, who escaped he can they cannot uh, uh, do, do anything in their life they cannot go on uh, in their life so I, I can say the life of Sudanese people are like um, stopped they cannot uh, do anything uh, in their life I think all Sudanese people need medical or psychological support. Um, all of them are suffering. Um, all of them have families in risk areas. Uh, they are suffering like uh, people in Gaza, as Noshin mentioned. Uh, they have um, this uh, suffering uh, physically, mentally, all type of uh, suffering. That's all, Noshin. Harleen, sorry. Thank you, S. Um, it was, it was, there's hope, I think, and we really hope that um, you can uh, see your home again uh, with your family. Um, just as a concluding remark, uh, I would say that, I mean, there's a quote from Martin, Martin Luther King uh, Jr who said um, the arc of moral universe is long but it bends towards justice um, so i'm hopeful that whatever we're seeing the advocacy efforts um, that we're making uh noshin as is such an ardent uh, advocate for gaza for palestinian people um, and s i hope uh, we can build that community uh, for Sudan, Sudanese uh, diaspora has been 
speaking up and demanding uh, justice and peace in Sudan. And we hope to build that community with which can engage in a nuanced discussion uh, and force the power structures to uh, focus on the civilians. Any final messages uh, and comments, Noshin, before we end uh, the discussion? Just to say thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, thank you for being so open and for sharing your story. It's really, really touched my heart. Um, I just, I, I, I'd like to echo what you just said, Harleen. and I hope that we can build on um, kind of the galvanization of activism and, and advocacy that we've seen in response to what's happening in Gaza, and it can be replicated for Sudan and various other um, crises that we're seeing in the world right now. And I just hope that as you were saying earlier, that hopefully all of these crises will allow the people that are being affected to be the center of the decision-making process rather than having white men in smart suits make decisions for you know, the people that are really going through all the, the pain and the suffering. So I just, yeah, really, really hope that we see a better year in 2024 um, and one that really um, allows us to turn away from some of the things that we've been so used to seeing in the last few years and kind of the very obvious uh, colonization of the way that we think, the way that the world is built, the way that um, conflicts take place, the way that we we search for solutions even. Um, so I just hope for peace and um, just a lot of love and strength to, um, to us. Thank you, Nwashin, and thank you, S, and thank you to Ferishta for uh, for the time that she gave us. Um, and I hope to connect with you all again.